the big red flag, which is a huge red flag, really, when we think about it, is that the, the original manuscript, if it ever was a Don Huang manuscript, was destroyed according to nothing but the word of mouth of this guy. It was destroyed in the Cultural Revolution. And all we have is several copies that were recollections written down from the memory of the guy who inherited the text from his grandfather. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Different languages parse reality in different ways, like a diamond cutter slices facets to bring out something unique in a stone. One language can reveal what another language might hide. One of the benefits of learning a second language as an adult is that in the process of renaming the world with new sounds, you get a deeper glimpse into your mother tongue. Partly, this is due to learning words with the nervous system of a matured adult. And so the emotional content that rides along with the words we learned as children, it's not there. And so it might be easier to say, I can't stand that in your foreign tongue. But there's entirely too much emotional baggage riding on that phrase in your mother tongue. You might find that you're braver in your second language because you don't worry about sounding like an idiot. It's a foregone conclusion that you're going to twist up the grammar and not quite be able to wrap your tongue around the standard pronunciation. There's kind of a liberation in that. And sometimes, due to the habits of culture and the way that grammar parses how you think, it can be helpful to chew on a problem in your second language because it actually does see the world differently. And there are solutions to problems that can arise that will not be available to you in your native language. One of my favorite things about Chinese is that it's slippery and connective. It tends to leave things open instead of nailing them down. It's a language that relies on context. You can see how the medicine gets its nuance as it's less about nailing things down and more about opening up to the permutations of what something is within the fluid frame of unceasing change. The other thing about the Chinese language, especially the traditionally written form, is that the characters will often tell you a story that, in turn, allows you to unfold your experience with a multivalent attention. For example, the word ting, which means listen, it's made up of the characters ear, eyes, heart, and mind. Another character that I think about a lot is the character li, which is generally translated as pattern, connection, logic, order, reason, or sequence. The image associated with this character is the pattern of color that runs through a piece of jade. It's a moment frozen in time that reveals the pattern process of something, just as the grain of wood in your furniture bespeaks the unfolding of a tree through the seasons and cycles of its growth. Another way to think of Lee is that it's coherence. And I think of it this way often in clinic, that the work we do is to connect with a patient's Lee, their pattern of emergence in this world, and lean on that to help them with what life is asking of them in this moment. We have a phrase in English, against the grain. It usually means that you're working counter to the flow of what's going on. Often, patients come to us because they're not living in alignment with their most core aspects. When we deviate from the patterning of who we truly are, 
trouble is bound to arise. Patients ask me about how acupuncture works, and 20-plus years into the practice, that question is as much of a challenge to me as it ever was. In the past, I'd talk about channel flows or the role of nerves and endocrinological function. People like it when they feel like their minds can grasp something. But lately, I've taken to telling my patients that there is something in them that has a kind of intelligence that allowed two cells to come together and create one, and from there, grow into what became a baby, and that then allowed them to grow into the person they are today. That which makes us also heals us. We are ever in a state of arising, decay, unfolding, and being. Call it the spiral unfolding of DNA through the cycle of life with a patterning of Lee. In the same way, jade has its striations. Flowers bloom in their perfect circumstances. Leaves turn yellow and fall in symphonic resonance with the waning light. We humans, too, have a patterning that resonates with the world around us. Lee is not something that's easily nailed down. It's more like being invited into a conversation that matters, the kind of conversation that you don't know the outcome of. While Lee can mean manage or control, it's not the kind of control that comes from a self-involved force of will, but more the control spoken of in the Tao Te Ching, whereby understanding the way things work, you can position yourself in an advantageous way. When you understand how things flow, when you live in accord with the tides and the flows, you're less likely to work against nature and less inclined to go against the grain. We often talk about fighting disease, but can you keep your eye on what's going right and use that to intervene with what's going wrong? Can you work with your patients as they are, or are you asking them to be different from who they actually are? As practitioners, we like to see our patients get better, and we like to feel like we're competent and helpful. I suspect the superior doctor takes his or her work seriously, and at the same time, leaves room for a patient to respond and be who they are. And when I say who they are, I mean they respect the Lee of a patient, understand that people have their own resources and ways of navigating life. Is it our job to make patients different or to help them connect more fully with their own Lee in a way that brings a greater coherence to their lives and allow that coherence to do the work of healing in whatever way is right for that person? The thing I appreciate about considering Lee is that it's an invitation to step back, appreciate a wider view, and recognize that the resources for healing are within our patients. And attending to the aspect of coherence in your patients' lives allows their innate patterning to emerge more fully, I think is trustworthy. In a moment, we're going to get into this conversation on the mythic roots of the Tanya Jing and the curious story of the Fuxing Jia. This will be like two detective stories that have been woven together and invites us into considering what we know the sources we hold close as reliable, and regardless of source, do the methods discussed help us in our clinical work? Our medicine has come down to us through centuries of other doctors' experience. Our job is to explore how it unfolds in our particular time and circumstance. 
These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app switch to book a one-on-one -on -one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period 
on your new chain account. I love this conversation with Sabine Wilms, and I hope that you're going to enjoy it as well. Alrighty, friends, here we go. Tanya Jing, by way of the Fuxing Jia. Buckle up. Sabina Vilms, welcome to Geological. <laughs> Thank you for having me again, Michael. It's always a pleasure and a total honor. <laughs> it's always a blast talking to you. You're always doing something new and interesting. It's like you... You do a book and then you like take two or three breaths and then you're like into another book or a series of books or this or that. You're like one of the most productive people I know when it comes to translation work. And uh, it's always such a delight to read what you do because it comes so from the heart. You have, in my view, such a keen sense of wanting to take these ancient words and make them alive in our current context. And your books just read like poetry so often because, you know, you bring in some Zhuangzi and you bring in some Lao Tzu. You can't help it. <laughs> right. You can't help it. So it's, so it's really lovely. I'm always delighted to talk with you today. I've been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks now because um, while it's probably going to be available by the time this podcast comes out, there's a new book you've got on uh, a thing that most people have not heard about called the Fuxing Jie. They've probably heard about the Tanya Jing, but we're going we're gonna to get into all that here in just a second. And um, this is such an interesting topic for me because the, the I first heard about the Tanya Jing, I don't know, a, a while back, right? I'm an herbalist. And yeah. so this Tanya Jing thing, it's like uh, it's like a mythic creature. Right? It's like a unicorn. It's like some kind of mythical beast. <laughs> it's a Loch Ness monster it's that Loch shows Ness up. Mon- the Loch Ness monster of Chinese medicine. It's like, look, there it is. No, it's not. Wait a minute. No, that's an old tire. What the hell is that thing? <laughs> and so, you know, we've had some conversations over this time. And the ta- again, the Tanya Jing is something that's gaining a lot of attention. But what's curious about it, it's one of these, I'm using air quotes here, it's a lost text. And I've always wondered since I started studying Chinese medicine about these like lost texts, right? Like, how do we know about it if it's lost? That is a great question. And and like, how do we know what to trust with it? And it's like, is it even real? Or is it a flight of fantasy? And so I've had a chance to, to pre-read some of your book. Thank you very much. It's been a delight. And and one of the fascinating things about it is there's this, I mean, we go on a little history trip. So before we get into all that, what I want to know is what got you interested in taking this on? And then, and then we're going to get on the, we're going to get on the train, Chinese medicine history train and take a look. But what got you started on doing this? Well, I think it's kind of like what you said that I was talking to my clinical colleagues and I would be teaching with with various people who I respect greatly and they would bring up the Tanya Jing as this classic of decoctions and I'm like what 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 is this text what are you talking about and they're like oh it's this ancient classic that that was lost and rediscovered I'm like well this is this is just weird how come I've never heard of this how did Sabina Vilma's not hear of the Tanya <laughs> 
there's only so many Han Dynasty texts or even Tang Dynasty texts. And as a medical historian specializing in that early period, I know them all. I mean, I haven't read them all cover to cover. But but what is this decoction classic? What is this tongue yijing? And and um yeah, that just kind of, you know, we were in the middle, we'd be in the middle of a conversation or or a or a seminar teaching or something, so we just move on to something else. And I just pushed it aside. Um and that went on for a few years. And then finally it just got to the point where it's like, no, people just keep bringing this up. And I got to just dig a little deeper and figure out what it is. And um, and then I somehow, I don't know, I think it was this spring. I mean, yeah, you're right. I jumped from one one projecting to the next. I was just, I finished the Channeling the Moon part two and I got kind of... I mean, I love gynecology, but but the channeling the moon parts one and two. It's it the, the especially the part two was really hard work. It was it was like a five hundred page book, and a lot of it. It was not that much fun. The translation was a really smart small part of it, and a lot of it was tracking down each formula and each quotation and and just doing a lot of textual research so i got a little a little i was like okay i'm gonna take a break and do something else so, so you thought you'd do the tanya jing is a way of like relaxing and unwinding is well, that actually no the the pandemic hit so you know i was like okay what like i i think we all sat and mm. and went quiet and you know what like i feel this huge urgency to produce work that is meaningful. And I have a giant, giant pile of projects that I want to do um, that I feel can help practitioners. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love to just 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 read Laozi and Zhuangzi, but there are so many great translations of Laozi and Zhuangzi out there that it's, you guys don't need, Another Laozi. Tra- I mean, the world needs. I need to translate Laozi for myself. But how can you be productive and helpful in a way where it's needed? Yeah. So I sat down and started Sun Miao's volume on Yang Xing, on nurturing the inner nature, nurturing the heavenly nature, because it's all about self care. Mm-hmm. It's about sleep hygiene, meditation. Qigong, living in harmony with nature, regulating your emotions. I mean, it's perfect for the pandemic. And I did that for a couple months. And then I, I honestly don't remember what happened. Somehow the Tang Yijing just like interfered with that lovely project, which now I can't wait to get back to Sun Miao in all honesty. Somehow the Tang Yijing just like plopped in there and it'd been on my, I think it'd been in the back of my mind for so long that it was just like, okay, here I am. And, and, and somehow I think I was looking through, um, I think Vivian Law's book on the Dunhuang medical manuscripts. And I came across Wang Shuman's article on that had Tang Yijing in the title. It, mm-hmm. I think that's maybe where it all started. And I realized that what they're talking about, like n- nobody, nobody had made this clear to me that it's really the Fu Xingjue that they're talking about. And the Fu Xingjue, so it's Fu Xingjue, Zhang Fu, Yong Yao, Da Yao. 
it's a text that I actually had in my bookshelf in several editions because it's a text that's included in some Don Juan medical manuscripts. So, so Don Juan is this is this oasis in the middle of the desert um, that was a very active Buddhist intercultural trading place at the on the Silk Road. Out in the middle of nowhere. In the desert. And it's mm-hmm. this incredible and and I love the Tang Dynasty because during the Tang Dynasty, you had, especially the early, the first half of the Tang Dynasty, you have this influence of um Central Asian and Indian culture. Really, Buddhism started coming into China in the late Han Dynasty. And I think Buddhism really changed Chinese culture deeply in a way that's 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 hard for us to wrap our head around because separating in Chinese philosophy, separating what is pre-Buddhism and what is past Buddhism, you have to have a certain kind of training in classical philosophy to kind of smell out because we're Westerners and Buddhism came from Indo-European culture. So for us as Indo-European, as people from a Judeo-Christian Indo-European background, we find something in Chinese culture that feels really familiar, like this idea of separation of mind and matter, Mm. the way Buddhism talks about the material realm as opposed to the immaterial realm. Are you saying that the Buddhist influence in China helps to give us a handle on Chinese culture that we otherwise wouldn't have. I think so. Chinese culture would be even harder to penetrate if it didn't have Buddhism to our Western mind. I think so. And I think, you know, and this is something that is really important for Chinese medicine people. I mean, as, as a historian, I am trained to think of, you know, Han dynasty philosophy and Tang dynasty philosophy or literature or culture or classical pre-Han, Han, Tang, there is a, there's a progression, whether you're talking about religion, culture, art, literature, medicine. Mm. And you can see the influence. And so I had my head in Sun Tzu Sun Tzu was very much, he was early Tang dynasty. He was very much influenced by Buddhism. So I think that's why I'm kind of visiting my books. And and the Don Huang, so Don Huang was this outpost that was a very active Buddhist colony. And there were hundreds of caves. And in the early, and I'm so bad with dates, I should, I should have made myself a little, a little notepad with the important dates here. In the early 1900s, this monk who was kind of this Taoist monk, who was the this unofficial caretaker of the Dunhuang Caves. And, and at the time, you know, early 1900s, there was like nothing going on in Dunhuang. And the Chinese empire is kind of collapsing. Oh, it's there's, like totally imploding. It, it's total chaos, right? Yeah. So this is a total outpost. And this monk... A total outpost in a dynasty that's falling apart. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's a mess. It's nothing but chaos. Except they're at the, in this desert outpost, so it's probably not as chaotic as it was in, you know, Shanghai or somewhere. Okay. So this monk 
smokes a cigarette and he notices that the smoke of the cigarette. The monk was smoking a cigarette. Of course. Only in China. Or maybe maybe a pipe. I don't know. Did they have cigarettes <laughs> in the in the early he was smoking? Nineteen in the early nineteen hundreds. They didn't even have cigarettes then. Oh see, see, I have to this is like the perfect example where it's so easy for us to read things back. So, you know, into history when really the reality then was completely different. It's right. so easy to do. So there's smoke and he discovers a, a, a crack in the wall and he opens it up because the smoke does something weird. And he discovers this cave that was sealed in the early Song Dynasty, in the 10th Dynasty. And this cave is stuffed full. And it, it's so it's been sealed for, what, a thousand years or something? And this cave, this is the so-called library cave in Don Huang. And it's, it's now it's very famous. There's a whole field of studies. There's, there, there's I mean, there's a, dozens of conferences that have happened and books published on all this material that came from this cave. Basically, it's like an archaeological, it's like Ma Wangdui, it's like a tomb that was sealed at a certain time. And then we open it up 2,000 years later and we're like, Ooh, it's, trove. it's amazing. It's because it's not transmitted literature, but it's literature that was written and sealed. And this, the, and the Don Huang manuscripts, there's, I mean, there's medical manuscripts, there's economic stuff there is maps there is astrology there there's a huge amount of material in in Don Huang it's not just i mean it's it's revolutionized chinese the field of chinese history the way we talk everything we know about this this border station that what we know about military what we know about the life of lower class people it, it it's this treasure trove of information and i've worked with Don Huang manuscripts before trying to understand what Tang Dynasty or, or medieval, you know, um, medicine was like on the ground. Because all we have otherwise is these transmitted texts. And as you probably know, in the early Song Dynasty, all these texts were heavily edited and moved around and reorganized um, by the Song Dynasty, by the, um, by the imperial... The emperor hired all these medical historians and editors to create standard editions, the standardization of medicine that happened in the Song Dynasty. So it's like the TCM of the Song Dynasty. Yes, the official textbook versions, the official. This is the true version of the Yellow Emperor's classic. So would you say it's like, would you say the early song was like the first standardization of the medicine? Oh, dear. You're putting me on the record here. Well, um, I'm just, no, I'm, I don't mean to put you on the record. I'm just, I don't know the history that well. I know the history, like, briefly. It's a long-ass history. But I know that, like, one of the things about modern Chinese medicine, TCM, if you will, you know, was a kind of a standardization. And that that's helpful in a certain way because it helps you to teach things quickly. Yep. But anytime you standardize something you know, what, what do you do with what gets left out? Exactly. Exactly. Well, you don't even know it's been left out, right? It's just an empty space. And, and that's why it's helpful that there's, you know, all this other stuff. And that's why, for example, like in the, the Humming with Elephants book. My favorite. 
I know you like it. Thank you very much. You know, all those all those discussions that I have where actually this commentator says it's a different character. So when you have the standard editions of the classics, you, in a way, you put the lid on all these discussions. You're just deciding this is the true version. This Capital is... T. Capital T true. Okay, so we got the smoking monk... Finds this, <laughs> or maybe it was a, maybe it was a campfire. Okay, so eliminate. No, this no, no. I, I, I like you know I can see this monk. So, so my friend Toby Daly, who's been teaching me, um, learned it from this monk. And and on occasion, the monk would be like hanging out in these parachute pants, smoking cigarettes, treating people, doing acupuncture. He's just like serious Buddhist monk smoking a cigarette. Sure. I love these kinds of things that in our Western mind we go that's such a contradiction. But you know, the Eastern world is very different than us. Yeah, I just I just don't know if they had cigarettes. They no, cigarettes weren't even invented in the I early bet they were smoking hand rolled cigarettes. Anyway, whatever whatever it was, doesn't matter. I like the image, so I'm so I'm keeping it, even though it may not be true. But we, they find this incredible treasure trove of material that changes how people think about the history. I mean, it's basically this this Taoist monk who has no training in philology. He's not a scholar. He's just this local guy who finds this cave that has been so sealed for a thousand years. Okay. He, and it, and it's just stuffed full of scrolls. Like, like just the, I mean, thousands of, of, of scrolls of ancient texts that were just stuffed into this space and sealed and hidden. Can he even read this kind of stuff? Well, that is a great question. Um, he must have been literate because according to one story, he sold the Fu Xingjue to the grandfather of the guy who submitted it to the Beijing Institute of Medical History, whatever. And the grandson told the story in the letter that he submitted that the monk um, told the guy that, oh, here's this text. Of, of medical, you know, this, this, this medical text here, give me some money and I'll sell it to you. So he must've been literate enough to know that this was a text that it was about medicine. medical information. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there are all these manuscripts. Um, you, eventually you get a um, British explorer carting off selling. Uh, no, the, the, the Taoist monk, sells a bunch of a large percentage of these manuscripts to a British explorer who carts them off and they're now in the in the um, British Museum in London. Then slightly later a French guy shows up and he he's actually a trained sinologist and he buys most of what's left over and he carts it off and that is now all in Paris. And those two and 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 if you're into Dunhuang studies and you're you've got these books in your shelf, which which any of you, all of you, of course, have, right? Right? You have. <laughs> Never mind. I'm a nerd. So <laughs> so if you're into Dunhuang studies, you know that mo that that the texts are identified either with a either with an S and a number or a P as a number, and the S stands for. Oral Stein, which was the British explorer who classified, he, I mean, he listed all the manuscripts that he took to England mm -hmm. and, and then 
Pelliot was the Paul Pelliot was the French guy who took all the other ones to Paris. And these manuscripts are all preserved now and they haven't gotten destroyed. And, you know, of course, this is colonial history. So basically the Chinese got royally ripped off for like a pittance. And this takes us to the story of this text. So supposedly this Taoist monk kept some manuscripts for himself. And this is where things get a little shady. This is the story. But, you know, I'm following... Chinese archaeologists who I really respect, like Ma Zixing. I've got several books on the Dunhuang manuscripts, and this Fu Xingjue text is included in these collections. So when I when I opened my book and I started looking, I have these all these books on medical manuscripts from Dunhuang. And there's the text. It's right in there. I've got the Chinese in my it's been sitting in my library for, for decades. So you didn't have to go to London or Paris. It was in your library on Whitby It was Island. right there in several editions. I have like four different books. It's great. So I'm like, well, this is going to be a really easy project. I'm just going to crank this out. It's, you know, like everybody's talking about it. It'll be, it's important that it's out there because people are like, well, what is this text? And, and what does it really say? And people who don't really know how to read classical Chinese are kind of quoting it and misquoting it. There's just all this... You know, and, and and everybody talks about it, but nobody has really clear access to it. And here it is in my shelf. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do a little detour and do this really quick. A little detour. Yeah, yeah. It was a little more than a little. It was a big detour. But, but you know, what else am I going to do in a pandemic? <laughs> so basically, the story goes that the Taoist monk sold this manuscript to the grandfather of the guy who submitted it to the the Beijing Institute of Medical History. And the guy did not submit the actual manuscript. The big problem, the big red flag, which is a huge red flag really when we think about it, is that the, the original manuscript, if it ever was a Dunhuang manuscript, the original manuscript was destroyed according to nothing but the word of mouth of this guy. It was destroyed in the Cultural Revolution. And all we have is several copies that were recollections written down from the memory of the guy who inherited the text from his grandfather and his students, disciples, whatever. So there's, I have a book that has over 20 different versions of this text written there's like three versions by this guy and then all these disciples wrote their own versions and and so it it gets re, it gets way messier than i had anticipated hello everyone and cecil sturman here a working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words the power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel 
clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind, and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do Channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. So it gets, it gets weird quick. Let me make sure that I'm following this, okay? We've got the Buddhist monk who's making a little bit extra money by selling off these treasures at the end of a, uh, you know, dynasty that's falling apart. You know, I mean, it's probably not a bad idea. Hey, this guy comes in. Hey, give me some money. Uh, great. I get to eat and keep my Buddhist temple going and take these manuscripts. Taoist, some Taoist. go off to yeah. France. Some go off to England. One goes off to this guy's grandfather. But that one gets lost in the Cultural Revolution. So the grandson, let me make sure I got this. The grandson writes down from memory what he knew of those manuscripts. Yes. And sends it to yes. Beijing. You got it. Some cut, no. It's, it's a mess. So that sounds a little fishy to me. Yes, except that, I, I mean, I totally agree. And this may be because I'm a Western-trained medical historian. And I think as a historian from a Western background, we tend to be more critical and cynical than our Chinese colleagues. Really? People making shit up in China and passing it off as authentic? No, no, no. I'm talking about the medical historians. The, the guy who submitted it, whatever, you know, and, and he's published books about it. And he, I think he's kind of got his guru thing going, this group. He and, and, and his students have published books and they claim that it's the Tang Yijing. But Okay. So again, let, let, me, let me make sure that I got these timelines right. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it gets worse. It, it, yeah, we are only, we're not even halfway through the story. We're just beginning. But basically... I, 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 no, no, I get that, but I just want to make sure I understand this. So, so there's this lineage piece. It, it, it comes from the text in Beijing. It came from this guy who wrote it down himself. But the stuff that's on your bookshelf is that from this cat? Yes. Or is that the stuff that's that's from this cat? What about what about the stuff that's in England or Paris? Well, well, this is just one manuscript. And this manuscript, and this is the thing, the Fu Xingjue was never mentioned by any, it's never, this text has never been mentioned by anybody else. We have no, there, there is no record of the Fu Xingjue anywhere else. All we have is a guy who writes down, he jots down what he has memorized from a manuscript and all we have is his word for it. And he submits it to this Beijing Institute. But here's the deal. And, you know, usually I would be like, oh, this sounds so flaky. But these medical historians who I really respect and who specialize in ancient medical literature, and they, 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 they know all, they've got all these texts memorized. They have analyzed this material that this handwritten manuscript that the guy sent off to the institute. 
they have analyzed this back and forth, and they have determined that this is, it's definitely not a Han Dynasty text. It, they have determined that it is quite likely that the guy's story is correct. And it is, and it is possible. So that it is a, and that means, so they have accepted that it is most likely a manuscript that came from among the Dunhuang manuscripts, which means it is roughly 6th through 10th century, which makes it a medieval text. They've analyzed the language, the content, the phrasing, the taboo characters. So the Fuxingjue as a text, it's a really cool text that nobody knew about that is found in this collection of medical manuscripts. And I've worked with other texts among the Dunhuang manuscripts. And I, you know, there's cool information in there because it's kind of like the medicine on the ground. What do you mean by medicine on the ground? Well, it's not what was cleaned up and standardized and processed and approved by the imperial Song government uh. for general consumption and dissemination. Like when you look at... Like when I did my dissertation research for Sun Tzu or now when I'm working on Sun Tzu I have several editions of Sun Tzu and there are the it, what we're what we tend to work with. So we talk about the Neijing, or the Shang Han Lun, or any of these texts, and we are like it's a Han Dynasty text, right? The Shang Han Lun. Well, not really. We don't have a copy from the Han Dynasty of the Shang Han Lun. All we have is the transmitted texts from the Song Dynasty that were standardized in the Song Dynasty. So we really don't know what the Shang Han Lun looked like in the Han Dynasty, I'm sorry to say. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I hate to burst that bubble. It, um, you know, I mean, I've heard this, that for like 400 years, the Shang Han Lun was lost. Yeah. And we don't, we don't have a Han Dynasty copy. I mean... I wish we did. And we have quotations in the Dunhuang manuscripts. And that's another reason. And like, I mean, we don't, there is no copy of Sun Tzu work in the Dunhuang texts. But for, for, for Sun Tzu um, writings, I went to a Japanese collection of medieval Chinese texts because Japan is another place. These manuscripts were sold and along with Buddhist texts, they were sold to Korea, and from Korea they made their way to Japan, either through Korea or directly. And in China, the Song Dynasty, th this period of um, civil war between the Tang Dynasty, there were roughly 300 years be between the Tang and the Song Dynasty, when you didn't have an empire and there was there was there was warfare, libraries. There was a huge amount of book. I mean, books were written on they were not printed yet so they were very precious and very rare and they were printed on silk or bamboo and libraries went up in flames so we have texts preserved in in Japan especially in this text called the Ishin Ishin Fang formulas from the heart of medicine or Ishinpo which is another text that I work with all the time so when you talk about lost texts, the Ishimpo is full of quotations from lost texts. It's a gold mine. That's why I use the Ishimpo all the time. So you really have to be kind of a historical detective 
to pull some of this stuff together. You have to really be able to span your awareness and understanding of how things are connected over hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, it gets really complicated. But basically, the consensus in China is, and I'm going with that because I have a huge respect for the medical historians who've studied this te these texts, they've, they've compared the different manuscript versions. They interviewed the guy who, who memorized it. I mean, they, they, they've done the homework. And I'm sitting here on Whidbey Island, and I'm just going to take their word. I've decided if they include this text in all these collections, in the standard collections of Dunhuang medical manuscripts, I'm going to take their word for it. Okay. So people that you trust who are well-schooled and top you know, top yeah. notch have, because they've looked at how words are used and they look at how phrasings used and ideas and all that, they go, well, he may have like written it down out of memory, but it's not out of character with these other things that we found in this time and place. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And it is, and it is so specific to the period that he couldn't have made it up. I think was probably their, their, their evaluation that it just fits. And after studying this text and, and working with it really, really closely, for a long time now, or not very long, but long enough. Um, I, I, I agree with them that that's, it, it really does fit the, the, perfectly with the language around um, the, the environment of, of people like Sun Tzu Ge Hong, Tao Hongjing, this, this time period. This, okay. So we've got the Fuxing Drift. Fuxing Tran, what is, how do you translate that into English? How oh, would God. oh, God. Oh, God. I should have had my notepad. Oh, um, it was really, it's a really awkward text. And that's part of the problem. This text, it's not a, it wasn't, okay. It's just a mouthful. Fuxing Jue, Zhang Fu, Yong Yao, Fa Yao. So, so Fuxing Jue is just a, like a, like, like, like jue is like helpful tricks or, or knacks. Mm -hmm. It can also have the connotation of a little secret, an esoteric, like like a Taoist literature can be jue. The, these, these things that you can memorize, sometimes they're rhymed. And fuxing is, is helpful for action. Mm -hmm. So secrets helpful for action. And then zangfu, the zangfu organs, Yong Yao using medicinals and Fa Yao as, as rules. Yao, like essentials, the crucial uh. rules, the crux of, of using medicinals on the Zhangfu. And that's important. And all of this in, in helpful knacks or secret tricks or something like that. Zhangfu tricks to keep up your sleeve. Yeah, and, and we will put, I'm going to send you the, the title translation that I've settled on, and we can, we, can, I, we'll, we can put it in the notes, okay? Okay. Because it literally, I mean, it cost me weeks it's and weeks helpful. of sleepless yeah. nights. Of, yeah, of, yeah. Of, 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 it was the hardest thing to translate this, this darn title. Help me understand here. Where's the Tang Ye Jing fit into all this? This is where, this is where it gets messy and complicated, I think. So the Fuxing Jue is a wonderful medieval text that is fascinating for me as a medical historian because it's in this time period between the classical 
age, the age when the classics were written, right? The 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 Yellow Emperor's classic, the Shang Anun, the Jingwei. And then you have Sun Miao, and you have, I mean, you have some Tang Dynasty text, and then in the, from the Song Dynasty on, you have this explosion of medical literature because you have printing, you have a stable dynasty. I mean, starting with the Song Dynasty, we just have so many more texts that were preserved. You have the development of specializations like gynecology, pediatrics, you know, acupuncture, standardization of acupuncture locations, you know, the, the bronze figure, what we talked about, the standardization. So in the Song Dynasty, you have all this information. And for me, there's, there's this gap as a medical historian, there's a real gap between so-called classical or canonical or whatever you want to call it, Han Dynasty medicine, mm. and then really the development of medicine as a professional practice that was sponsored by, that was supported by the government where you had an imperial college of medicine and you had imperially appointed professors and you had a body of knowledge and you had giant imperially sponsored formula collections and you had a system of pharmacies by the empire that had standard patent medicines so they were ready for epidemics in a way that you could never there was nothing in europe at this time period comparable to what the Chinese did. And then especially the Mongols. The Mongols were very practically oriented. So the Yuan dynasty. But anyway, so that's much later. And in this period, and in the Han dynasty, you have, you know, the Yellow Emperor's classic, the Shang Hanlun, the Jingwei, the Mai Jing. And then you have this, this long gap. And now the Fuxingzhu falls right into that gap. And one of the things that happens is when you look at Materia Medica literature, the Shenong Ben Cao Jing is not a very clinical, it's not a clinical text, right? The original version, the, the, the original version of the Shenong Ben Cao Jing categorizes herbs or, or medicinal substances in upper, middle, lower, and the upper is that the, the ones associated with heaven, they, they're for immortality, the middle ones are for kind of longevity, um, taking as tonics, that sort of thing. And then you have the lower class associated with earth, and those are for treating disease. So the Shenong Ben Cao Jing is not a text that was written for clinical application. In the Song Dynasty, and then you have formula, so you have Ben Cao literature. Then you have formula literature, like the Shang Hanlun and Jingwei and, and other texts. And then in the Song Dynasty, you have a development where the, the 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 clinical ideas about the Uxing, the five elements, about about treatment and diagnosis and and channels and all of the stuff, it starts flowing, it flows into the materia medica literature. And materia medica literature changes and begins incorporating, it becomes clinically useful. Ah, okay. And you don't have that in the Han Dynasty. They were basically separate literary traditions. And the Fu Xingzhu is absolutely fascinating to me because it is a combination of formulas and it has this funky section in the middle that categorizes 
25, I want to say, substances by the five, we can call them five dynamic agents, five elements, whatever. Well, well, I mean, that would make sense because you've got five dynamic agents. It's a great translation. And then with each one, so you got like the water within the water, and you got the fire within the water, and the earth within the water. And I mean, these are all ways that, that anyone who studied a little bit of acupuncture already knows how to think about exactly acupuncture in terms of the five phase correspondences and so this is using herbs in a similar fashion exactly so it's mm -hmm. really great when you think about most chinese medicine practitioners in the us are primarily acupuncturists they're primarily trained in acupuncture and then they i mean it's really changing is that fair to say I don't know. I've been out of school for 20 years. So but what I know about what's happening in schools, I don't know anything. I'm not a teacher. Well, you, you talk to people all the time. Well, I talk to people, but that doesn't mean I understand anything about acupuncture education as it's currently yeah. unfolding. I'm not, I'm not in that world. Most of the people I talk to are practitioners. So my sense is that until about maybe 10 years ago, most people who learned about Chinese medicine, they learned to be acupuncturists. I don't know. See, I went to a school where we learned both simultaneously and at the same time. So, I, And the reality in, in China, of course, is that, that they're separated. medicinal treatment is, that is like the, 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 you know, that's the pride of the scholar physicians is, is the medicinal formulas. But it's very difficult to learn. And here you have the Fuxingjue, which, which presents you with this. It's a historical text, and it presents you with a way of understanding 25 herbs according to this five-phase, five-element categorization. That is, that is quite useful if you want to learn about herbs. Makes sense, right? Yes. It, it's a great teaching tool. That's what I heard first about the Tang Yijing, that it was it was a text that was really helping. It was like, oh, wow, I finally started learning about herbs. Especially from that point of view of the five dynamic agents. Yes. It's, it's like another perspective, another way of looking at these medicinals that we use, bringing in that five phasal thinking. You could probably throw some... Uh, you know, six jing in on it as well, and you know, makes sense. Don't, I think. No, 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 we're not going to do that. No, no, no. no. We're going to stick with the five phase piece because it's, yeah. you know, again, it, there are so many different perspectives that we have with our medicine. It's easy to kind of like mishmash them together, but I think it's probably more helpful to try to understand them as they are within like whatever kind of method it is. And then see what that method actually has to say once you understand the pieces of it. Yes. And it makes sense, right? That when you have this way of category, if you if you can categorize herbs in that way, or we should really say subst medicinal substances, even though in this case they were these 25 were herbs. But one of the things with that is that one of the versions of the Fu Xingjue also has a whole categorization on minerals, which 
nobody who's presenting the tongue aging in this country in English ever talks about. So there were there there are aspects of this fuxingjue that are found in some manuscript versions and not in other manuscript versions that have been eliminated because in modern practice in America we don't really use minerals in that way. We're not so you know here's another little red flag just just a little side note but basically having the scheme of classifying herbs is really helpful when you're trying to study herbs when you're beginning to to like i know when i taught at at the college in portland nunm the students were just i mean you know studying these herbs is overwhelming and all you're doing is memorizing you're memorizing point names you're memorizing herbs you're memorizing formulas it's it's so having a a, a scheme of classification something it a structure to to it it's it really helps of course yeah. it does yes but i'm still a little bit confused it's like what's fuxing jian what's tanya jing it's like how's tanya jing fit into this because from my under my very very limited understanding it truly is like a unicorn. I mean, you hear about it at different points in time, and it's like supposed to be the underpinnings of the Shanghan Lun, but you know, and then it's got you know, of course, it's got this great creation story of you know the the magic chef and all this other stuff. But like, how do these things hang together? How do we even know that the Tang Jing was something real and not made up? Sorry, this is a really hard question. No, you. All I can see is rainbow-colored unicorns dancing around, and it's like, Michael, you don't believe in unicorns. No, but I mean, it's like, I mean, the thing has, I mean, my, my limited understanding, the Tanya Jing is this, like, mythic thing. And one of the things that concerns me, and, the, you know, I, I get this from myself, and I see it in our profession. It's like, ooh, there's this kind of mythic thing. And, and I think it's easy to go, oh, there's, like, this mythic archetypical big, beautiful story. And we kind of love that story. And we might swallow the story because it's a nice story. But I mean, I'm this like guy in Missouri, for God's sake, right? The show me state. I want to know how this damn thing holds water. Well, it doesn't. And that's, that's, that's the bottom line is, is the fuxingjue. And this is what people just have to get in their heads. The fuxingjue is not identical with the tangyajing. The Fuxingjue is a medieval text that was composed by an unknown author. It claims that it is by Tao Hongjing, but it's clearly not. I mean, Tao Hongjing was this really, really famous scholar, author, Taoist practitioner. Tao Hongjing, I mean, we know, we know he he compiled and authored so many books, including a revision of the Shenong Ben Cao Jing. We know so much about Tao Hongjing. He was incredibly literate. He was like Sun Sumer. He's one of my great heroes. This, this text was not written by Tao Hongjing. There's just, and, and you can read my book about it. You know, we don't need to go into the details. But I mean, I, I wrote this really, really long introduction on it. The text quotes Tao Hongjing, and it's probably not even really quoting Tao Hongjing. It claims to be quoting it first the text says it was compiled by Ta Hongjing and then it quotes Ta Hongjing in the actual text which already doesn't really make sense so it was a text that was compiled that was somehow it was just a a text that made it into the Donhuang cave that was sealed in the cave so we've established that 
The tongue edging is a completely different story. And there is no historical reference. There is nothing at all outside sources that talk about the Fuxingjue as being identical with the Tang Yijing. There is no, there is no historical evidence for that. And it is also not something that the medical historians in China mention. Like all the books that I have on the Dunhuang medical manuscripts, they discuss this text. There's introductions, there's, you know, discussions afterwards, and they have critical footnotes, and, and you know, they talk about different versions of characters and all of this. And they just treat it like a medieval manuscript. It's great. It's interesting. Okay, great. Now, the Tang Jing. Tangye means decoctions, and Jing means classic. There is a story, and we don't have to go into all the details, but... Um, oh, I, but I want the details. Well, we'll be here until tonight. Okay. Yeah, we can... We can <laughs> That's a lot of tape on this thing. It's a long story. So there was supposedly... I mean, I... Okay, so the, the, the mythology of this whole text is there was a cook... 2000 BCE, so 4,000 years ago, in the Shang Dynasty, who Ian, this famous chef who wrote the Tang Yijing, and somehow magically, or or he probably didn't write it because they weren't writing very much. He composed whatever, you know, it's kind of like the, the Taoist monk smoking a cigarette. You tell a good story. So whatever, he created the Tang Yijing, the way the divine farmer, Shenong wrote the the Shenong Bensaojing. So it's a mythology, right? The divine farmer did not write the Shenong Bensaojing. Just like the Yellow Emperor who lived, whatever, what are the dates for the Yellow Emperor? I mean, they have exact dates for the Yellow Emperor that are like 3,462 BCE to so-and-so. I'm not kidding you. I mean, Chinese love their history. We know there was not no such thing as a historical figure called Huang Di, and he did not write the Yellow Emperor's inner classic. Right? We we treat we've we've progressed enough in our understanding of medical history that people like you accept that the Yellow Emperor's inner classic is a Han Dynasty text, even though it it, it claims to be written by the Yellow Emperor who lived three thousand years earlier, right? Say yes. There was, there was no yellow emperor? Wait a minute. Now I'm in deep trouble. Oh, Michael, don't do this to me. No, no, no I, I get it. They're, they're, you know, again, These are culture heroes, like mythological culture heroes. So exactly, which is why I was saying there's like, the, you know, it's like this mythical text. These things are like unicorns. So Ian is actually mentioned in some Shang um, oracle bones. So we know that he was, he actually was, he was more historical than the yellow emperor. He was a minister or somebody who received sacrifices at the Shang Dynasty court. He is known in Chinese history as he was a slave who was who was presented to the Shang court from some other court along with I I, I forgot a wedding present or something like that or somebody's birthday celebration or something. And he served the emperor um the Shang ruler, he served him soup and made friends with the ruler somehow, and somehow he rose to the position of minister. Supposedly, he created this classic of decoctions. So it's a recipe of soups. I mean, literally, Tang Ye yeah. is like soup. It's a book about soup. But we don't know what the book is about. 
No, but I'm just saying if you say tang ye, tang ye is basically, basically means soup. I mean, tang ye does, is used in formula literature and it is used by, in, in texts like Sun Miao to refer to decoctions because decoctions are soups. But how do we know it's not just a recipe book of soups? We don't like know. The Tang Ye Jing is Martha Stewart soup book of, you know, 4000 BC. We don't know anything about the Tang Ye Jing. <laughs> I mean, no, we we don't. And okay. No, I don't want to I don't want to make it a joke. It's not it's not no, a joke. I mean, I don't want to make it a joke either, but what what I'm what I'm really trying to get at here because I love herbal medicine and and I love I love 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 how things come down to us through time and it often is through story and yes. it is through the experience of one person teaching another person and they they like get what their teacher said and they and they get their own insights about it and they use that to practice and they teach that to someone else and these things come down and down and down through time to us today and and I you know we it's like we have the privilege and the responsibility of stewarding this medicine. And, and I take that very seriously. And, and I'm delighted to be, you know, a link in that chain. So I, I get it that it doesn't have, you know, we don't have to necessarily have a book to go, there was this thing. Maybe it is a story. You know, some of the best stories out there are like fairy tales and stories of gods and archetypes and, you know, things like that, because there's something that is true about it that can be yeah. perceived and used by us in, you know, in this moment. A lot of things are metaphorical. It doesn't mean they're fiction. It means it gives us a chance to use our imagination and our heart. So that yes. being said. And that's, you know, that that's like said, the story about Sun Tzu Miao that he lived in a cave with the dragon and the tiger. We don't have to believe in dragons and tigers. I live in a cave with a dragon and a tiger. It's my own damn emotions that drive me crazy. I live in that cave. <laughs> I mean, these things are, I mean, they're absolutely metaphorical and useful and true in many, many senses. So, yes. but, but the thing I want to come back to again here, Sabina, is, you know, I, I, I hear about this Tanya Jing. And, and what I'm hearing from you is that, the, that there's a way of taking herbs and understanding how they work through the five phases. And, and I've read through the introduction of your book, and it seems like different people throughout history have referred to this book, but it's like there's, it's like there's just little glimmers in snapshots over the course of centuries about it. Yes. So there is a mention in a Han dynasty. We don't hear anything about the Tangye Jing until the first mention is in a Han Dynasty bibliography. There's a record of Tangyejing. And and one of the problems is that Tangye, like you said, it just means soups or decoctions. If you want to say medicinal soup, something like that. And Jing just means classic. But it could also be classics. And I forgot how many scrolls is said in there. I think it says 10 scrolls. So it doesn't even have to be a book title. It could just be a record that there are 10 scrolls of classics of, of decoctions. Did, did it even say Jing? God, I don't even remember. I think it did. So, so it doesn't mention Ian. It doesn't say anything. It just says that this, it just mentioned this book. And then you have, oh man. 
this is why I'm a really bad historian. And that's when I teach, I always have to have PowerPoints because I, I jumble story. I'm a bad storyteller. I jumble things up. So basically, Zhang Zhongjing, in his preface, mentions the books that that he used to develop his formulas. And he gives us a list of the famous physicians. Um, he does not mention the Tang Yijing at all. Isn't that a little suspicious? I think that's really important. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I think it's important too. I mean, I'm suspicious is probably not the right word, um, but it, it, I, I find it a curiosity that someone like Zhang Zhongqing, who would, if that was a rat floating around at his time, he would have mentioned it. There's no way. There, there's no way. And and I translate the preface. I I have all those passages in my introduction, so you know you can you can all. And that's why the introduction is really long, and I have taken the time and energy and space to really translate each of these passages in and explain the context because you can create a story when you take little bits and pieces and kind of cherry pick them you can piece things together but you really have to look at at i mean this is kind of what i had to do you step back and you're like okay if the fu xingjue is identical with the tang yijing what where do i look for where would i look for evidence of that and and the preface to the Shanghan Lun would be the first place I would look for evidence. Well, it's not in there. So what does it mean? Sun Tzu mentions Yin cooking decoctions and Shenong doing um, doing tasting herbs, I believe. So there is, it's like there are these very very faint traces, but. There is not a single quotation of a Tangyajing in any of any of the transmitted literature. There, there's we don't have the texts like the Ishimpo that I was mentioning earlier from Japan that has all these it mentions all these lost texts. The Tangyajing is basically a lost text, which is why it's such an attractive text. You can you can claim anything about it because it was lost and nobody knows anything about it. Except that Sun Sumyar mentions Ian. It's mythic. It's got this mythic appeal to it. I mean, there was like some 
some kind of a, and it makes sense that Ian was the celebrated minister who started out as a chef. So, you know, the Chenonc, the divine farmer tasted herbs, the yellow emperor wrote the inner classic that, that this, this chef somehow gets, you know, credited with cooking decoctions, but nobody in, nobody in these received in the standard literature mentions a Tangia Jing quotes any of these formulas as a quotation from the Tangia Jing. The only thing is there are, and this is, I think, where people, this is the reason why people associate the Tangia Jing with the Fuxing Jue. One is that a couple of times, and I go through this in my introduction, the words Tangia or Jingfang, so classical mm. formulas or decoctions, they're used in the Fuxingjue. And there's one place, I believe it was the introduction to that section on the on the herbs being categorized in this, you know, the in this five in this Uxing structure. In the introduction, I believe it's Tao Hongjing is quoted as. He's not, he's never saying, I'm quoting the Tangia Jing. And that's the thing. It's like people just assume that, that, that the Fuxingju is identical with the Tangia Jing. And the problem is that people have this idea in their head and it's not based on reality. If you look, the, the Fuxingju does mention the Tangia Jing, or it mentions Ian composing the Tangia Jing like Shenong composing the Shenong Ben Cao Jing. But it does not say this section comes from the Tangye Jing. It does not ever identify. And it, it quotes from, the, from lots of other classics. So there are, the, the, the Fuxing Jue is a compilation of quotes from a bunch of different texts, but it does not identify any section in it as identical with the Tangye Jing. And People now take the entire Fuxingjue, or at least the piece. I mean, they don't take the mineral section. They, they take one version of the Fuxingjue and claim that that is identical with the Tangye Jing, which is a leap of faith that is just not okay. And then they say that this Tangye Jing is ancestral to Zhang Zhongjing. And that is completely made up. Well, if it was ancestral and if Zhang Zhongjing actually used it, I mean, he was very good about explaining where he got his stuff. Why would he not mention that? Right. So, so this is what I'm, you know, again, I, and, and I hate to keep harping on this, but I'm going to keep harping on this. Let me give one more piece of the puzzle, which is that there's one section at the end of the Fuxingjue, which is the section of the yin and the yang dan or dawning formulas and the six spirit formulas. And that section contains almost literally identical versions of formulas that are in the Shang Han Lun and Jingwei. And that is why people claim this. That is another piece of the puzzle that we have to mention, that there is a close textual overlap between Zhang Zhongjing's work and certain formulas in the Fuxingjue. Now, my argument would be the other way around. Zhang Zhongjing's work is, is quite famous and we we can date. We, we, we know that some version of the Shang Hanlun and Jingwei existed in the Han Dynasty. 
we know that the Fu Xingzhi is a fifth to sixth to tenth century text. So it makes no sense to claim that the Fu Xingzhi predates mm-hmm. Zhang Zhongjing's writings. It just makes it's a complete to me, it's a historical, it, it just makes no rational sense. It makes much more sense to say, oh, the Fu Xingjue quotes from Zhang Zhongjing's writings. And these are some modifications of the formulas and modifications of ways of thinking about Zhang Zhongjing's work. Almost literal quotations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is possible that both of them are derived from a mythological tongue Jing. But why? I mean, th- th- I mean that's what the that's what the claim is. I think, but then you're adding this whole other layer that the Tang Jing is lost. So adding that both Zhang Zhongjing and the Fu Xingzhi are derived from the Tang Jing doesn't really. It just muddies the story even more. When to me it's just like okay, Zhang Zhongjing's formulas are here. They were they were incredibly effective, they were useful. It makes perfect sense that a medieval text contains all these different layers from different centuries and different, you know, people quoted and preserved and transmitted orally. So just because this medieval text contains a few formulas that are quote that are almost literal quotations from Zhang Zhongjing doesn't mean that the text is Han Dynasty. D- does that make sense? Um, yes. And as we're having this conversation, I'm, I'm realizing, I mean, I I think I had, I've had inklings of this for a while as a clinician. I don't care where it comes from as a clinician. I'm concerned with, Oh, here's a perspective. Can I understand it in a way that allows me to be helpful to people in my practice? That I mean, that for me is first and foremost. Now, I like a good story as much as anybody else. But I, but again, I, I come back to, is it helpful in clinic? That is ultimately why I got into this introduction, because I could have just translated it and just put it out there for people and stayed out of the whole controversy. No, I'm, I'm really happy that you took us on that Chinese medicine history train. And for any of you that have not yet read the book, the clinical information in there is helpful. If you're an herbalist, it's a perspective that's worth considering because it will help you to think more deeply about the work that you do. You can never go wrong with thinking more deeply about the work that you do if you're interested in your work. But the thing I find most fascinating about this, Sabine, is the way that you really have gone through the different centuries and the different texts and and looking at it with your Chinese medicine historian eyes, as well as a a translator of, of classical Chinese and, and like not giving us an answer, but helping us to better understand the puzzle. I think something that became really clear to me when I worked with Sharon Weizenbaum on, she, she did a little commentary on the, or not a little, she actually, she did a great commentary on that last section with the, with the dawning formulas and the six spirit formulas. And she, she did a forward for me and we went back and forth where we met pretty much every day for hours on zoom. Sharon loves zoom. 
and you know me, I'm, I'm not a great friend of Zoom, but we, we would just get together in the morning. It was like, I'd, I'd wake up and she's three hours ahead of me and there'd be like five emails from her. And it was like that when I used to work with Nigel Wiseman, when we did the Jingwei together, it was like, I would wake up and there'd be like, you know, a pile of emails from Nigel about this and this and that. And I would work through them. And then this was before the age of Zoom. But then then Sharon and I talked really closely. And what really came out of that is the Fuxingjue is a fascinating text. It's really helpful. It's it's cool. It's formulas addressing the, the Zhang organs, which was an innovative thing at the time. And this 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 scheme of classifying the the medicinals, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a clinician. That is for you, but but a lot of my clinician friends are finding it really wonderful and helpful and useful. So here I am. Here's the translation. You do with it. You know, you make it clinically useful. But the important, the really important part for that introduction, and the reason I did all that work is because we have to treat the text realistically, and if we read the text as a whole, the entire Fu Xingzhi, as a sacred Han Dynasty classic that predates Zhang Zhongjing, it changes the way we read this information in a way that might lead you down the wrong path. It's very different if you read my translation as a sacred, as a Jing, because when we read a sacred, ancient Jing, right? A Jing is kind of a timeless. It's a the classics in Chinese philosophy and medicine were preserved through thousands of years because there's something timeless and incredibly precious in them. And for me, if I don't understand a line in the Laozi or in the Yellow Emperor's classic, I don't say the text is wrong. I say, oh, I'm just not as enlightened as the people who compiled the yellow, like the Su Wen. The Su Wen is so deep. I know there are passages in the Su Wen that I don't get because I'm not enlightened. I don't have the sensitivity to the fluctuations of yin and yang that the authors of the Su Wen have. And maybe I can come back to it in five years and I can intuit it. Or a lot of times I would get it in my dreams or when I go swimming or, or you know, I have to step back from it for a week or a month. And then I go, right? Mm -hmm. my, my, my MO when I read a Jing, a classic, is if it doesn't ring true with me, if I don't get it, it's because my understanding is too limited. Maybe the translation is wrong. In case if you're reading it in English, there, there's I don't blame the text. I blame myself. Well, I don't know. I don't know. If blame is the appropriate word. I think there are stages of development, right? Children at the age of three can understand certain things, but not others. By the time they get to eleven, yeah. there are certain things they can understand. Yes. When they turn seventeen, there's more they can understand. When they become an adult, and maybe they're in their forties, there's even more that you can understand. Some of it, it it's not about like blame that you're not enough of something. It's just sometimes you need a certain amount of development before you go, oh, right, that's what they're talking about. And that, and that aspect of Jing, that there's this thing that runs through it, there's a thread literally that runs through it. I, I always get a little um, 
persnickety around the word sacred because it, you know, it uses a big stick to beat people with so often. But this idea that there is something that, like, through time holds an element of something essential that we can get and will be helpful for us as human beings. That makes sense to me. Just like there's certain things in every generation that get like rediscovered, but actually our parents knew about it and our grandparents knew about it. You know, people have known about it through history. It's just that, you know, we kind of have to learn a lot of things on our own when you're an individual. Yeah. 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 So that, that so, jing piece is... So that's a jing, yeah. right? Yeah. And if we read the Fu Xingjue, uh, if we claim that the Fu Xingjue is actually the Tangye Jing, in that sense of a classic from the Han Dynasty, Han Dynasty. Mm -hmm. and if we treat it as something that is ancestral to Zhang Zhongjing, it just gets really confusing. To me, as a medical historian, it doesn't make sense. This text, the content of this text, it could not have been composed prior to Zhang Zhongjing's work because it reflects a way of looking at the Wuxing and the Zhangfu organs and formulas and herbs and medical theory that is medieval. It just wasn't there in the Han Dynasty. So it's intellectually confusing it, because it's, it's, you're reading the text ahistorically. But when you're just reading it as a Dunhuang manuscript, you know, it's... It, and helpful. Yeah, it's it's Nazi book of tricks. Yes, and and it says in the text that it comes from this environment of Taoist, like Tao Hongjing. I mean, it claims to be by Tao Hongjing, but we know it's not. But but it basically it was written by these or compiled by these Taoists that were living in the mountains. They were pursuing immortality. People like Sun Smiao, their goal was to, to, to become immortal. And it was, this book is like the first step of keeping yourself, you're safe, yourself safe when you're up in the mountains. And here are 25 herbs. And these 25 herbs are all you need to keep yourself when you have an emergency that affects this Zhang organ and this Zhang organ. And then Oh, there's this whole other piece, which is really cool about the the Tianxing, Waigan, the, the externally contracted celestial movements or actions or whatever, that last section. I mean, see, there, there's like, the text is really cool because it comes from this group of people who were living in the mountains with very limited, they were not in the capital. So they had limited access to medicinal substances and they're creating these formulas. And that last section is about responding to, we had that, we had the tea time talk, I believe on it, where we talked about Wygon. Yeah. With Iran Evan about why uh, the heavenly movements, the external contractions. And this question, is it external contractions or is it just like an external stimulus that the human body is responding to and it is responding to with pathology when it is out of alignment with the movements or the actions in heaven? Mm -hmm. And of course, heaven can always mean nature. So, so the text was written to help humans come into better relationship with 
the movements in heaven. So it's a really cool text. It's just... The other thing to me that's cool about it, um, and again, speaking as an herbalist, I mean, herbal medicine is hard to learn and it can be really confusing. I found that shortcuts don't work. I've tried them and they don't work. I've tried shortcuts. I wish they worked. They don't. That being said, when I think of like, oh, if I could like really get, if I could like really grok mm-hmm. the way that 25 herbal yeah. substances work along with the five phases, then maybe it will help me to understand the underlying mechanism. Yes. Like how some formulas work and how herbs work together and how I can think about it in terms of five phases. I love that I can take something. I don't know. I mean, when I think about like, okay, 120 herbs, I got to learn all that. It's like, oh my God, you know what? I need to go wash the car right now. But when I think about 25 and I think about connecting it with something that I already am beginning to get a feel for after, you know, 20 years of practice, like the five phases, I think, oh, this is a doable endeavor. And, and especially the thought of if I only need, you know, it's like, if I don't have access to a whole bunch of herbs, what are the essential ones that I need to think about? So I, I, I love that it's, it's kind of minimalist in a way. Yes. And, and at the same time, it can help me to understand the more complex aspects of herbology as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that you can look at these formulas because like the first section has formulas for each of the zang organs. And you can look at, and there's certain herbs that are used over and over again. And then they're, they're altered depending on the agent or element of that organ. And I think you're absolutely right that you can, like there's, this text is really cool and you can, and this is for a clinician. This is for somebody like you. And this is always my hope with all my work is here's the translation. This is what I do. This is the history. This is the context. This is the translation. And now you guys go out there and you teach this material and you see whether it makes makes sense to you. Like like Sharon Weizenbaum, who did the commentary on the 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 dawning and the six spirit formulas. Like that's really cool. And she does connect it to the to the Leo Jing. And it's like, whoa, it's right over my head. But but it's it's great. And I love working with you know somebody like that and seeing what how they it, there's like a translation of it. It's a transmission is really what we're all doing. Well, again, we we are fortunate. We are fortunate to be involved in this medicine. That some of it comes through books, some of it comes through stories, some of it comes through experiences of people that we're kind of connected to, and whatever lineage we are connected. Um, but the most important yeah. thing is that it is able to come alive in our experience and in our practices. Yes. And so I am deeply grateful for the work that you do in, in bringing these kinds of things to us and the, in the poetic way that you approach it, your books are so much fun to read. I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to gush here for just a second. I love Chinese medicine. I love this stuff that we do. And sometimes reading it and studying it is just, it's tedious and it's boring and it's dry. I mean, it's just, 
I'm going to have to have really good tea to power me through it because it's dry. A lot of the material is dry. But you infuse a kind of lingua, kind of liveliness to it and and bring in these, these other influences. I just, you know, and, and you use puns and you kind of make little jokes. I mean, if you read any kind of Chinese, you make little jokes all the way along in the way you do things. And so I just find that your way of, of doing it that's uniquely you makes it more accessible for me because it's fun. The texts are, po- you know, enough Chinese, you know. No, 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 no. I know, I know modern Chinese. Like it makes me sad when people think that the Yellow Emperor's classic is this awful thing. Like it was never meant to be read cover to cover. And these poor students have to read the whole thing for a class. And it's like like when we did that little little class yeah. on, on Su One Five, right? You take a little passage and it is so rich and it is so poetic and beautiful and philosophical, and there's this deep, deep cosmic wisdom in it and you if you just have if you just sit down and read it in english like that just gets lost and you're right it's it's painful to read it like that cover to cover well you know what the huang di neijing actually was don't you this is a trick question no it's not a trick question the huang di neijing was the first podcast on chinese medicine it was the first conversation recorded on chinese medicine no, it was not a podcast. It was a person. It was an in-person. They were they got to sit and share tea. Yes, they got yes, they did. Conversation they got to give each other a real hug. They probably got to throw pillows at each other when they disagreed. Well, not quite. Well, but all I'm saying is podcast today is <laughs> is, is the technology that we have for taking dialogue, conversation, and inquiry. Yeah. And, yeah. and using it to understand medicine and how to practice it. And the Huangdi Neijing was a conversation. It was a dialogue. It was it was two people, probably more, but you know at least the characters in the in the podcast there. Yeah, two yeah. People discussing and chewing over like how's this stuff work? This world that we find ourselves in, this medicine that we have, the way human beings are. It's like how's this stuff work? And it's it's not that different from what you and I are doing right now. And it ha- I think it has to be. I think it's so deep and complex. It has to be a conversation. It has to be a conversation. So, Sabina, thank you for this conversation. This has been an utter delight. Um, where do people go to get this book? <laughs> HappyGoatProductions.com. <laughs> <laughs> I used to sell goat cheese and now I sell books and the the name still works. (laughs) I'll be sure to put a link to it over on the show notes page. I'm waiting for the proof in the mail and everything is taking forever right now. But, but yeah, it's, it, it'll be, I, I was, I was, I always, with my books, I always aim, well, I always aim for the holidays, right? I always, I'm always like, oh, this one, we'll have it out in October. No problem. And then it's always like the Chinese New Year. It just seems like. Okay. Chinese New Year is very auspicious. I know. I know. That's my excuse. And then it's like the New Year. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I was talking about the Chinese New Year. (laughs) (laughs) No, it'll, it'll, it's, it's basically done. Great. Yeah. So by the time all y'alls are listening to this, you'll be able to buy a copy. I can't wait to get mine. Sabina. Well, and 
where's my time to ask you questions? Wait a minute. What questions do you have? You have some questions for me right now, or you want to do this in a different podcast? What do you want to do? I, w- I want you to read the book, and then I I would love to. Yeah, I want I want to have a conversation about okay. what it means. I want to know if I'm onto something or if it's complete floofy stuff about this external. Well, I really okay. I have one question. Do we mm. have time? Yeah. This this wagon mm. external. We always translate it as external contraction, and that's that group of formulas in the Fushingjo, the last section. It's about the externally. I translated as externally contracted celestial movements, and I and I think we should say that celestial could just mean natural. So it could be the the the, the movements, the actions in the macrocosm. You mean you mean like coronaviruses suddenly running around the neighborhood? Yep, exactly. Yeah. And th- of course, we can associate it with whatever. And I should also say that the first character in the Fu Xingzhu in the title, that Fu mm. is the name of the star Alcor, which is a star in the in the Big Dipper, not in the handle, but in the in the in the pot part of the Big Dipper. And when I was working on the title for the book, that star talked to me. And it's like, you want to write a book about celestial secrets? I'll show you. And it's been just like getting slammed with the power of the stars. It's like, yeah, you want to think about movements in heaven, movements in the sky. It's like, oh, yeah, right. Good luck. So so there's a whole other story to this title that we could have gone down. Another rabbit hole. But your question. So the question is this Wygon. Mm. We think of it as external contraction. And of course, we think of Wygon Tianxing. It's translated as epidemics in modern. It's equated with the, with the Wenyi, the warm epidemics, whatever, and, and seen as a development of the Shanghai cold damage. Mm-hmm. Some sort of external thing is coming in and mucking with the internal environment. So do you think it's crazy? Or, or do you think there's more going on when we think of Gan? In the sense of stimulus, like when you translate it as external contraction, it sounds so clinical and and sterile. Like, what's your opinion about the 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 stim the the resonance between the human body and the the move the the how do you see this these tianxing? Is that too weird? Well, let me see if I'm understanding the question. You're asking about the human body's ability to deal with things that come from the outside in nature. That could be anything from a virus to how the stars are moving and the universe happens to be at that moment in time. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, it's a broad question. I I mean, my... Is this clinically useful to you? Well, I mean, it, it helps me in terms of thinking about, like, what am I doing with my work? And it helps me in thinking about like, okay, so a human being is an ecosystem with nested within larger ecosystems of, of, of culture, of family, of country, of, you know, time and place where we've got all these like nested interlocking relationships with nature, human being, human body, human spirit being like, you know, one aspect. And you know, it's like that that question about like, what's the definition of health? You could talk forever about that one. But it seems to me that that as human beings, whether you're 
deciding that, you know, we ended our skin or we, you know, somehow are bigger than that, you know, are we talking about the physicality? Are we talking about our social self, our psychological self, you know, the aspect of us that's part of a family? There is at every level of nature that I can perceive an inside and an outside, right? And we see this in Chinese culture, right? Neo Guanxi, right? It's like you have a relationship with something. We're going to Neo Guanxi, not Neo Guanxi, right? If you got a connection with something, okay, things are cool. My suspicion is that our work is about dealing with influences that come into us, whatever we consider the us to be, and either help us in our life or are problematic to us in our life. And that can be anything from a thing like the coronavirus to a bad childhood, to a good education, to good friendships or a nice cup of tea, right? There's an inside, there's an outside. There's kind of an us and a them. Or is it an interior and exterior? Well, you can call it interior, exterior. I've got a bunch of different names for it. The question is, is there a sense of harmonization between these things? And if there's harmonizing, if there's harmony between the different aspects, then, you know, things are pretty copacetic. It's when there's not a harmony between the inside and the outside, or the them and the us, or the me and mine, or the whatever. Then, then we start having trouble. You know, I mean, what is xia qi? Xia qi is, it's qi. How can you say it's evil? From xia qi's point of view, xia qi is just like, hey, I'm just going around doing my thing, right? It's only a problem, you know, from the side of me who might be suffering from it. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It does. Anyway, I'll read the book and we'll come back and you can ask me questions. Okay, deal. Okay. <laughs> You know, I'll hold you to it, too. (laughs) All right, my friend. Thanks for this conversation today. I've wondered over the years about how we can have much to say about a, air quotes here, lost text. And in this and some other conversations with Sabina, I've come to realize that you can trace the influence of lost texts through the writing of other doctors and through the commentaries that are such a rich source of considering our medicine. Having a historian's eye and the way that they can follow the footprints through time of a particular text, it helps me to better understand the influential echo of past doctors and writers and how they can influence this present moment. I hope that you found this conversation to be helpful. And remember, Sabina's book is for sale over at Happy Goat Productions. There is some useful, clinically relevant material in her translation of The Celestial Secrets. And as with all her translations, the medicine comes alive in only the way that Sabina can write it. Well, this pretty much wraps up January and pretty much wraps up the year of the rat as well. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.